everybody. So Hi. this is our largest panel so far. In fact, it's technically our first panel. Um, but we have uh, Megan DeFranza, we have Marissa, and we have Leanne. Um, Megan, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to talk with you um, and join with the work of Centerpiece. So I'm a straight, white, cisgender, um, typically sexed female who grew up in the white evangelical church and um, really was very devout as a child my whole life um, and really came to the work that I do studying theology and sex difference, gender, sexuality from trying to figure out my own calling because in the churches I grew up in, women were not theologians. They were, they were not professors even um, right. at Christian colleges, the Bible colleges that, you know, in the world where I grew up. Um, so my interest in gender really started out by asking, how can I serve God without accidentally sinning because I was born as a girl? Hmm. And that led me through Bible college to seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary with studying theology and then another degree in biblical languages, and then on to my doctoral program in theology, um, where I started to <laughs> realize that there are people for whom the question of sex difference is much more complicated than mm -hmm what can women do in the church? And that's when I discovered there are people for whom the categories of male and female are insufficient. And whatever, you know, oppression I had experienced as a white woman in white evangelicalism um, was nothing compared to the harm that has been done to our um, siblings in Christ who are not typically sexed. Um, mm -hmm. So that, began my work and my dissertation and my book, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God. That's amazing. Um, Marissa, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I am a um, queer intersex woman. Um, I am a Christian and I've been involved in the intersex community for about 10 years. Um, I've known Megan for five years. We met in 2016 at um, the Androgen and Sensitivity Syndrome DSD conference. Um, I was immediately intrigued by what Megan did because as an intersex woman and a Christian, I, I didn't think there, they, I had never met someone who, who talked about the intersection of that and so I was immediately intrigued and she has such the expertise and I'm yeah I'm just I'm so happy that yeah. I know Megan and Leanne um yeah that's wonderful um and Leanne would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself so just so everyone knows um Leanne's uh, ser cell service uh, is a little spotty, so she may drop in and off, but we'll we'll do our best to make sure it flows correctly whenever we're we're editing the podcast. But we, you know, we certainly appreciate your insight, Leanne. So would you would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I am an intersex woman. 
Um, my husband and I are longstanding members of conservative Presbyterian churches. And I was raised as a boy. I have a condition called mixed gonadal yeast genesis. It means that some of my cells have a white chromosome and some don't. That resulted in a mix of ovarian and testicular tissue. Um, and I had to have surgery to have um, vaginal intercourse. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I would like to, um, I think I'll pose this question to Marissa. Um, so Marissa, I am a transgender woman. Um, a lot of people kind of conflate being transgender with being intersex. Can you give just kind of a brief um, overview of the difference between a trans woman or a trans person rather and a, an intersex person? Yes. Um, and Negan or Leanne can contribute if I um, don't explain it perfectly, but um, intersex refers to biological traits that you're born with. It's an umbrella term for a number of intersex um, conditions, which we now prefer to call variations or differences. Okay. Um, there are many intersex people who are also transgender, um, but intersex refers to biological differences that you're born with. Okay. Um, and Leanne, you were kind enough to, to tell us that you lived at least a portion of your life uh, presenting as a boy. Um, would you consider yourself transgender or do you consider yourself um, intersex or cisgender? Um, because those kind of seem like three different categories. Well, I, I would start by admitting that it gets complicated. Yeah. Um, I don't consider myself trans. And I think part of it is I have a sister who is trans and our lives um, are significantly different in terms of how our bodies were when we were growing up. Um, I, I think that, you know, the trans umbrella is so large that um, you have intersex I'm sorry, you have transgender kids who, from the moment they can talk, are, are telling their parents that they're not the sex that they're being raised as. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you have people like my sister who uh, married and fathered children and then decided to transition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, intersex studies would tend to indicate that gender identity is based in biology somehow, or at least partly. Sure. Um, but it's, it's different sure. than having visible physical differences. Yeah. So, um, Megan, uh, I think I'll, well, first, um, because we, we discussed this very briefly beforehand, I want to ask you a very important question, and that is how often do people mess up your name? <laughs> Pretty regularly, but it's fine. <laughs> um, you have it right. <laughs> So, uh, so Megan, do do I understand correctly that your your primary study is gender differences, uh, biblically speaking, or do you also um, study the science of um, gender differences? Well, I started from biblical studies and theology, but I was so dissatisfied by everything I was reading on the 
theological significance of gender differences. So spiritualizing femininity and masculinity or saying all women are like this or all men are like that. And the way theologians and biblical scholars talked about that, I felt like they didn't fit me, you know, as a female. Um, and so I just, and most of them were written by men. Um, so I was just really dissatisfied with what I was reading in theological books just on male and female. So I started to ask, is there anything we can say about all men and all women in all cultures and societies throughout history? And that led me to the science. Um, so I had to learn human biology in ways that I had never studied before. And I actually yeah. had a biologist on my dissertation committee to keep me honest. I also had Leanne who read my dissertation to keep me honest on the other yeah. side. Is this even going to be useful for intersex people? Um, so yeah, I had to get into the science and um, like Leanne said, it's complicated. There are many different ways that bodies are sexed at the genetic level, at the gonad level, inter testes or ovaries or a combination thereof, um, hormones levels in the body, how the body receives those hormones and how that develops internal reproductive organs or external <laughs> reproductive organs and secondary sex characteristics. So sex is at lots of these different levels. Yeah. And as you were talking earlier about the difference between intersex and transgender right now, the difference is physical traits that scientists and doctors can identify. Mm. You know, as Leanne said, there, there are some pointers that some parts of gender identity do relate to biology, and it's really understanding intersex experiences and biology that has helped us understand that along with other studies. Um, so it may be that some transgender identities may be incorporated under the intersex umbrella someday right. if we can identify, you know, different ways the brain is sexed and sure. other things like that. But at the moment, the difference is what scientists can see and identify and what they can't. Yeah. So I've had to study both. Yeah, that was, uh, that's really fascinating. I, you know, I, I think kind of regularly about there are, there are studies that I'm, I'm not sure how conclusive they are and I'm not sure how accepted they are that talk about trans people and, and the brain being, you know, it would indicate that my brain is more similar to that of a cisgender woman than a cisgender man. I, I don't know, you know, the veracity of that claim, but if if that were to be sort of proven, is that kind of what you're indicating would would maybe push trans people more under the intersex umbrella? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so one thing that, you know, I frequently kind of deal with is I'll, I'll think back about my childhood and all of the media and the um, TV shows, you know, anything that was available to me as a child painted transgender people in a really negative light. And I'm, you know, I, I'm ashamed to say that I, I thought about this as an adult but I never considered that it, you know, did the same thing for intersex people. So um, I'll start with Leanne. Leanne, would you mind kind of describing, like, was there any, you know, time in your life where you kind of were exposed to, to negative, you know, representations of intersex people? And, and did that affect you and your, your view of yourself? 
Um, when I was a child, I was um, so tiny and frail that my parents feared losing me. And um, I was the smallest of my classmates until fifth grade. And then fairly small until uh, the end of high school and then just kept growing into my 20s because of the lack of hormones. Um, I have some spatial deficits, so I can't really learn sports, at least not sports that involve like a basketball layup or a volleyball spike. Um, the, the sequential spatial things I can't do. And so I was never able to do any of the things that little boys are supposed to be able to learn. True. And um, so, you know, I got picked on for being the smallest. I got picked on for um, playing with girls mostly. But I also envied my older brother who was six foot by the time he was like 13 years old and was strong and agile and all the things that boys are supposed to be, except that he was gay. Um, and, you know, my, my little brother and sister um, seemed to be fairly normal. I was at six years, I'm sorry, at nine years old, I was small enough to wear my six-year-old sister's dresses. So I was still, um, I, I, was, I was living in a world that was more misogynist then than it is now. Um, and um, I think what finally convinced me to transition was um, the lack of a puberty and um, wanting a life where people left me alone. Um, yeah. So I, I think a lot of my motivation was different than my sister's motivation right. in terms of, you know, she was a successful EMT, um, went out on calls with the fire department, had the, the physical abilities and spatial abilities that I don't have. So, um, I don't know. So that, that's interesting to me. Um, yeah, I, I would presume that my story is at least somewhat like your sister's, um, certainly not the same, but you know, I, you said something that kind of fascinated me, which is, you know, I transitioned so that, you know, people would leave me alone so that, and presumably so that you would feel more safe and secure. Um, and for trans people, it's kind of the opposite. It's kind of like transitioning despite being unsafe and, and insecure about it. Um, so mm -hmm. did, do you and your sister, like, have you ever discussed this kind of, um, this kind of difference in, in your, um, you know, going, going through your transition? She transitioned um, maybe three or four years ago five years ago, um, she was in her 60s. And I think she still has, I talked to her a couple of times about, look, you have to be careful where you go and when you go, and you have to watch people more than you did. And I yeah. think she has not quite lost the assumption that nobody's gonna hurt her. Nobody's gonna do more than 
say something bad. Right. Um, whereas I grew up, you know, with people calling me names on the street and always being the smallest and unable to defend myself. Yeah. So um, there, there's a transition there that I don't think she's completed yet. Yeah, I think she will, but I don't, I don't think. You know, I, I can relate to that in a big way. I, so um, for anybody that doesn't know, I was in the Marine Corps. I was a corrections officer. I was very muscular. I did, I competed in fights. Um, and so it took me a long time to kind of accept, like, I'm in danger if I go out. Um, so, you know, certainly I, I hope that, that she does kind of get that frame of reference um, going forward. Marissa, did were did you always present as a girl and you know did did you know at a young age that um you were intersex or when when did you find out um well i was basically assigned female at birth mm -hmm. um because that's just how the medical community has historically treated intersex children with um, ambiguous genitalia now, which I prefer to call genital variants. And yeah, I was um, assigned female. And for me, luckily that, that worked out. I've always presented and felt very um, feminine and I always felt like a girl growing up. Um, so I never really had any question about my gender. Yeah. Um, can you talk just a bit um, or, I mean, in, in as much detail as you like, about um, what the kind of ethical issues are with, um, you know, somebody d doing, um, I'm, I'm not sure, so whenever trans people um, get bottom surgery, they call it gender affirmation surgery, which certainly is not the uh, correct way to refer to somebody with, um, I'm sorry, did you call, did you say genitalia? Variants. Yeah, okay. I, have, I had a friend who referred it to that, and I was just like, I like that better than ambiguous genitalia. I just like yeah. it better. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I do as well. And sir, and I, I do want to clarify, if I say anything incorrectly, I, I would appreciate it if one of you would um, kind of call me out on that, because I, I certainly don't want to um, say anything derogatory or um, unintentionally hurtful, but of course, that's not your job, so just if I would appreciate it. Um, so for somebody with genitalia variants, can you kind of uh, describe the ethical issues with somebody assigning them um, a specific genitalia at, at a young age? Um, yeah, um, well, uh, there's just so much. Um, I mean, you're just really s set up with long-term physical and psychological complications. And I think one of the biggest ethical things is um, there are people who are assigned to sex and have their bodies surgically altered when they're children and consented to, and they do grow up and um, feel the opposite gender of what they were, or opposite sex of what they were assigned and that is really hard because um, that part of their body that maybe they would have identified with was changed against their will and 
now it's a human rights violation to these surgeries. Um, so there's just a lot of ethical and moral things that it really sets you up with psychological and physical complications. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can, I can recall at a relatively young age hearing about this and thinking that sounds a lot like, you know, genital mutilation because this is somebody who's unconsenting. Um, and you know, this is at a time whenever I had no idea about the complexities of gender identity. So um, I would I would hope that people in the near future will be more understanding of, of those ethical issues. Um, Megan, I, I actually have two questions for you. Um, the the first one is, are you're you're currently practicing Christian? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And how did this understanding of um, intersex people and, you know, kind of learning about people with, with gender variances, how, how did that impact your understanding of fellowship? Fellowship? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, inclusivity, you know, did, did your study sure. of, of intersex people impact your understanding of any other communities that may be hurt by, by the church um, being neglectful of, of gender differences? Okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying. So, um, I mean, I was blown away. I had no idea that things were more complicated than the eighth grade biology, you know, sure. class that I had. And I think most people are. So to your listeners, I would say, don't feel embarrassed if all of this is new and it feels overwhelming. That's how it feels for most people when they learn this. Um, so for me, you know, learning, okay, this is a whole lot more complicated. Um, but I also was raised, you know, the theology I got was also that, you know, we could trust God with difficult things. And so it was rather than faith shaking, I said, well, you know, God can help us figure this out. And then the more research I did in the Bible and in Christian history, especially in the first thousand years of Christian history, I learned, wow, intersex people are in the Bible. Intersex people are acknowledged by, you know, the Christian fathers, as we call them. Um, Jesus talks about intersex people in Matthew 19, and he doesn't say anything bad about them. He actually <laughs> talks about the naturally born eunuch and then the um, eunuch made by humans um, as something that his disciples should learn from. And, you know, I got 50 pages on what that might mean and what other <laughs> all theologians have thought it might mean over the centuries, because it was very confusing to Jesus's followers. But he, he was actually telling his disciples to learn from people who are differently sexed. Um, and he used one of the categories created by rabbis um, who recognized, you know, although they have the same reverence for the book of Genesis that Christians have, they recognized that they needed more categories to name people in their community. Because if circumcision is the sign of your religious community, they needed to know who gets circumcised and who doesn't. And so when a child was born, typically delivered by a midwife, and there was question about their sex, 
the rabbis would get called in to make a determination. And they ended up adding categories between male and female. I think naturally born eunuch was more on the masculine side of the spectrum. There's another term for the more feminine side of the spectrum. And then there's the term androgynous, which is like right smack in between male and female. So um, learning that this was not something new um, that scientists have just discovered, but it's been around for millennia and that Christian teachers as prestigious as Augustine talk about intersex people and not, you know, as a problem, um, not something that needs to be fixed, um, really turned upside down some of the assumptions, just the knee-jerk reactions that I had as a, you know, someone who grew up in conservative evangelicalism, you know, the thought everyone's like, well, you know, Genesis says God made male and female, it doesn't say anything else. Well, yes, but <laughs> there's a whole lot more to the Bible than just Genesis chapter one, two, and three, um, and realizing that, um, that um, intersex people have been a part of God's family and the human family forever, um, I think freed me up to... Um, just think differently. And for me, it was really a conversion from being interested in gender for my own experience to really feeling like, wow, there are those people who have just been so much more hurt and marginalized by my Christian tradition, by my church than I have. Yeah. And for me, it felt like I had an obligation to um, address um, that harm because um, I didn't see anybody else doing it. Um, right. So. so that leads me into the next question that I want to ask. So uh, one of the issues that I kind of frequently run into with trans allies is that they have a difficult time kind of stepping out of the spotlight and letting trans voices be heard. And immediately upon contacting you, you, you indicated that you, you regularly speak um, with, a, you know, intersex people also present because you don't want to speak for them, you want to speak with them. Um, was that your, your initial gut feeling or is that something that you, you, you realized you needed to do as your understanding of intersex issues progressed? Um, Leanne, you might know this better than I do. Um, I knew that I needed, um, Leanne reached out to me during my doctoral program. She found something I did and, um, it was super helpful to talk with her about what I was thinking and what I was writing. And she was kind enough to read all 233 pages <laughs> of my dissertation, um, and keep me honest about that. So I think I knew enough to that there was a lot I didn't know, um, but um, I I don't know. I certainly started speaking, you know, myself, but you know, in academic conferences and things. Mm -hmm. But then Leanne and I spoke together a number of years ago at the Wild Goose Festival, and it was mm -hmm. just really great. Mm -hmm. And we hit it off, and then we started speaking together, which I was just so much more effective yeah. and her personal story you know brings 
my work, like it matters. This is a person we're talking about and they're right here in front of you. And then my training and the letters behind my name give, you know, the credentials for her to be heard um, and others to be heard. So I grew, I think, into that and found that that was really um, the best way to go. And I mean, my book that came out of my dissertation, Sex Difference in Christian Theology, I mean, I didn't know, (laughs) I was still very conservative when it came to trans identities. And there were, you know, I even didn't, the terminology has changed since then. So I say transgendered in there. So it's like, I've grown and learned over the years. um, And I, language is still changing. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. But I hope that my friends like, Ian and Marissa and others will um, keep me honest and let me know if I'm talking too much. Um, Leanne, well, first off, Leanne, was there something that you wanted to say um, in response to what what Megan was just saying? Well, I I started getting into public speaking as an author. And um, although I could go to PFLAG, and talk about my book and share my testimony as a Christian, mm-hmm. um, the door to Christian organizations was closed. And so Megan was very helpful in terms of her relationship with various Christian communities was a lot more solid than mine was. For a while, um, my very conservative Presbyterian church didn't even know my background. So, um, and they discovered it from my public speaking. So, okay. Um, Leanne, you, I, I, if I understood correctly, you said um, that you're an author. Are there any uh, books that you would like to plug while we're here and you, you have an audience? Um, I write mostly young adult or new adult with intersex main characters. Okay. The, the fancy word for that now is own right? So um, I, rather than give names of them, just look up my name this okay. time. Leanne Simon. Perfect. Oh, come okay. on. It's a I'd great like to... title to your first book, Confessions of a Teenage Hermaphrodite. Oh, People okay. are going to remember that more than your name. <laughs> right. That, that wasn't exactly my first choice for the title, but that's what the publisher liked. Yeah, um, but I would like to go back a minute to the surgeries okay. and point out a couple things. Hmm. Um, most of the intersex people that I know that had surgeries as a child um, had very uh, fairly poor results in, in terms of them not being happy with them. Um, the attitude still is if the doctors want to try to make your genitals look more like a boy's genitals. That's fine. If you agree, they'll go ahead and do it. But if you go, well, I'd rather have them look like a girl's genitals, suddenly you're transgender because Hmm. you're going against the doctor's original assumptions. So if you throw in the additional problem that these are all pediatricians and once we turn 21, most of us don't have anyone to go to. So um, the, the surgeon who did my, um, bottom stuff, um, was a pioneer in trans surgeries. 
Um, he spent his last few years in prison for killing too many patients, but um, that's what was available. I couldn't go to Johns Hopkins because I wasn't willing to spend years with um, a counselor without even having a physical exam. So, you know, those doors weren't open unless you were a kid. Yeah. So first, I just, I hate that that was the experience of, I'm, I'm sure, many, many intersex people. Um, and something that you said that is particularly troublesome to me is if you go against the doctor's decision, you were transgender. Um, did, did, do people generally, whenever they learn your background, refer to you as transgender? Is there kind of a conflict of terminology there that, that you're subjected to whenever people, um, learn about your history? Um, it depends on how ignorant they are. Yeah. Um, however you want to interpret ignorant, but, um, I, my body is unusual, even for someone with mixed gonadal dysgenesis. Um, I got very little breast development from estrogen. Mm. And they mistakenly put me on a dose of testosterone that put my testosterone up into the normal male range. And I felt so much different that I panicked and got blood work done. But by the time I could get the blood work done, um, I liked the feeling so much that I wanted to keep it. So hmm. I was on a testosterone patch for about three years and I gained eight cup sizes breast development. Oh, wow. Not facial hair, not muscles, breast development. Interesting. And for someone with AIS, that wouldn't be unusual. Okay. But um, I tried to get that testosterone from someone who was trans friendly. And he wouldn't give it to me because I didn't want to be a guy. So his rules for trans is it has to be cross-gender therapy and you have to want to buy into it. And I was intersex, so I couldn't get the treatment I wanted from him. Um, wow. Most of the time, I don't tell a doctor anything about my past other yeah. than mixed gonadal dysgenesis. Um, the, the fact that a, a trans-friendly doctor is ignorant about uh, intersex identities and the needs of intersex people is um, honestly just infuriating. I know a lot of, uh, you know, and I'm doing air quotes, trans-friendly doctors that are unaware of trans issues, and that is clearly problematic, but, you know, just to have no knowledge of, of intersex um, identities and, and the issues related with being intersex um, hormonally is just, that's mind-boggling. I'm sorry. There, there's also this concept that estrogen is for women and testosterone is for men. Mm -hmm. And so I've had, I had another trans-friendly doctor tell me that she wouldn't prescribe progesterone, even though my body needs it to sleep. And you know, she thought, I would think I was 58 at the time, she thought I should go off of hormones entirely and just go through menopause. 
but I don't have any gonads, so it wouldn't be a normal menopause. Hmm. You know, it's it's not like they cut off at a certain age. Right. Um, yeah, it, and this is particularly fascinating to me because, you know, I'm on progesterone, I'm on estrogen, and it's changed, it's making, it's giving me breast development. And, you know, this is a very eye-opening experience for me and I hope for the audience. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Marissa, I have a question for you. Um, so we were talking earlier about uh, Megan's, you know, work and how she includes personal stories because intersex people are, are people and people need to hear about the personal side of this. Um, what was it like for you opening up and how does it feel knowing that your story positively influences, um, you know, a huge group of people? Yeah, it was, it was hard at first, but, um, the thing that has really made sense to me is I had so many secrets for so long and it just made me depressed and, um, now that I'm able to talk about them and well, I've talked publicly about them and um, the, my thought is I'm, I'm really trying to contribute to change and to help other people. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my motivation and, um, and well, it also just makes me happy, you know, to, mm -hmm. to participate and um, share my story, you know, it, yeah. every person has a unique story. So I'm, I'm, I always hope mine helps somebody. Yeah. Um, Marissa Megan... says secrets. Part of that is her body information about her body and her surgeries was kept from her. Yeah. Um, so, and I know she didn't actually share that part of her story, but she has elsewhere. So I know it's okay to say, but what I just want the audience to understand when she says secrets, um, you know, there's the privacy aspect, but she was actually not told what, what was done to her as a child by anyone, because yeah. yeah. that's what the doctors advised her parents. So. Yeah. Uh, Marissa, if you don't mind, um, would you, would you mind telling the audience about what that experience was like learning um, that you had gone through the surgery, you know, unbeknownst to you and, and what that did for your, you know, emotional and, and mental well-being? Yeah, um, I knew I had a surgery because I grew up, I mean, I have an eight-inch scar on my lower abdomen, and, hmm. um, you know, I was taken to doctor's appointments and um, other things growing up. So I knew I had surgery. I didn't know what for. I didn't know how I was truly born. Um I didn't know any of that really. I was given very vague, very little information on it at all. Um, yeah, and, and when I really learned the truth about everything, it was, I think I was like 20 years old when I actually requested my medical records from the hospital where that all happened. It was, yeah. um, that's when I learned about everything and it was, it was very, it was disturbing at first, um, just to see everything that happened and, um, yeah, but having, having, and I was angry, you know, all that was kept a secret from me, sure. not just, um, mostly by the, the medical, my, yeah, the medical field as I was growing up, I was 
really my I don't think my parents were told everything and so if my parents weren't told everything I was hardly told anything so I've really I really had to educate myself yeah. over the years on what truly happened yeah um can would if again I you know I understand that you've spoken publicly about this but if there's anything that you don't want to say we can either a just stop you know at the question or b we can take it out during editing and this goes for all three of you if there's anything you say that you would rather not be aired then feel free to let me know but um what what did that do with for your relationship with your parents um i i can imagine that that would be a stressful time yeah i was angry at them but i think more than anything i was angry at the doctors who did this to me hmm. well yeah, back when I was younger, because my medical records really describe it was really the doctors who who did all this, and I'm I'm not gonna lie, I was I was angry at God for a while. I really was. I was like, how how could have He made me this way and put me through all this? Um, so I would. I was I was angry for a long time at doctors, my parents, and at God, and um, so I've I've been able to heal a lot over the years, um, especially with my relationship with my parents and God, but with my parents because, um, yeah, they were they were not given all the proper information either, and so I have a lot of empathy for my parents. Um, yeah. <laughs> that that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um you know, I think that one of the I, I'm I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and and I think that maybe I can do that a little bit better than than others, but you know, certainly not not exactly. Um and I'm thinking what would it be like if for me if I were just kind of abruptly put into a category that I didn't understand and I didn't recognize, you know, for, for a trans person, you know, especially somebody like myself or even Leanne's sister, you know, we have time to process this. We have time to think about this. We, we kind of develop an understanding, even if we kind of resent that understanding, we, we still do kind of get to know ourselves through over the course of years. Um, was, was it difficult to kind of, did you have to think of yourself differently after you were told about um, being intersex or um, or what what was that experience like? Well, I was 15 years old when I was really given more information than I ever had in my life. I was actually in treatment for an eating disorder and mm -hmm. um, the hospital that I was hospitalized at, Johns Hopkins, just happened to be the place where they had a lot of my medical history related to my um, intersex story. And um, one of the staff members there, I mean, it was a matter of a 15 minute conversation that really changed everything for me. Yeah. Um, she didn't describe it well. And I was mm. in an unsteady mindset as it was. And so after that conversation, that really did change how I thought about myself. And it was negative for a long time. And yeah. Um, it didn't, um, it only got worse, I'd say, when I got my medical records several years later. Yeah. Um, Can you talk about what made it better? 
what made it better. <laughs> yeah. Um, really connecting with other intersex people that, mm-hmm. and relating to people and, um, yeah, because I, I mean, I felt so alone for so long. And, you know, that's one of the things, one of the things the doctors tell people. And certainly they told me was like, you'll never meet, this is so rare. You'll never meet anyone else like this. And back when Facebook was just kind of a young thing, it's, I initially connected with other intersex people and I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many other people like me. And yeah. The fact that I could relate to them, it really made me feel less alone. Yeah. Um, and so every everything has really changed for me. It doesn't. Yeah, it's good. It's still. I'm still working through trauma. I think everyone. It takes. It's a long time to work through trauma, but in general, I've healed a lot so much over the years. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's wonderful. Um, Megan, do you mind, do you, do you know the numbers off the top of your head, how many people have, um, are gender variant? I mean, whether it be an intersex condition, I'm not sure about the terminology, but do you know what the numbers are in terms of how many people are born intersex? So that's very political. (laughs) There's a lot of debate over which variations count and who's counting. Um, it's often expressed as a range, um, but uh, one to 2% of the human population is realistic. Okay. Um, it's what's acknowledged by the UN globally. Um, and just as a handy, how do I wrap my head around that? It's about the number of people who have red hair in the yeah. world. Wow. And that's a helpful statistic because if you're in Zambia, the number of people with red hair is going to be different than if you're in Scotland. Right. Right. And intersex variations often will run in particular ethnic groups, different types of variations in different ethnic groups. So it's hard to get good numbers. Um, and since intersex has been released in the last, what, 70 years um, or longer, um, but where the physicians have tried to fix intersex people, you know, hidden, I mean, Marissa didn't know, you know, and you're, or you're given these really big, long medical names and you don't have this everyday language of intersex or difference of sex development. I yeah. think you heard DSD earlier in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's hard to get those numbers, but those are the figures that are recognized. Um, if you look, the uh, an important resource is the human, the U, UN, the United Nations Intersex Fact Sheet. Okay. Um, it's like a two-page PDF that you can find. Um, it's really, really helpful. Marissa mentioned um, intersex surgeries on children um, are human rights violations. Mm-hmm. That is what the UN says, but it's legal in every state here in the yeah. US. Um, there are very few countries that have banned these surgeries. So part of the work that we are doing together um, with the courage of Leanne and Marissa and so many others telling their stories is to try and work for these non-consensual surgeries to be recognized as human rights violations. If yeah. kids need if kids are born without a urethra, so they can't evacuate urine, yeah. that is a medical emergency. 
a large clitoris is not a medical emergency. Right. And uh, if somebody with um, with genital variants um, were to be left completely alone, um, would there be any kind of, um, and, and presumably this changes depending on the, the type of variants, but would there be anything that was critical that, you know, could this person become an adult and have, like, would that person have issues? Would they be able to just live life normally? What, what would that look like? Do you want to answer that, Leanne? Um, well, I have some friends who didn't have any surgery and uh, are quite happy and content with their bodies the way they are. Yeah. Um, I also know a lot of intersex people who have comorbidities that have very little to do with intersex itself, but are um, accompany the particular condition they have. Things okay. like osteopenia or the spatial deficits that I have, that sort okay. of thing. Um, and to, to be clear, because I, I only heard the word comorbidity because of the COVID um, pandemic, comorbidity means just um, a, a secondary issue that is a, that it is attributed to a person's death. Is that correct? Correct. Like I have mixed gonadal dysgenesis, so I have um, my fingers are a little different than most people's, and my the way my elbows bend is different, and I have. Um, a malformed heart valve and okay. um, ha had some cross-eyed issues as a child, that sort of thing. But it's, okay. all, it's all related to the same thing that generated intersex in the body. Okay. What a lot that of people sense. don't understand is that, and um, one of the doctors in our documentary that Leanne and Marissa share their stories in talks about how we call these hormones, sex hormones, but they affect every system in our bodies. And so that's why there are often variations that may hit the genitals or the gonads, but then affect so many other parts of the body. Um, Marissa mentioned AIS, which stands for androgen insensitivity syndrome. And these kids are born with XY chromosomes, which is your typical male pattern. Um, but their bodies can't absorb the testosterone that their testes produce. So they look like little girls when they're born. And when puberty hits, it's something like what Leanne was saying, their testosterone goes through the roof, like your typical, what happens at puberty, but their body converts it to usable estrogen. Hmm. And then they get breast development from the testosterone in their system. Yeah. But doctors think, oh, this little girl should not have testes. So they'll take them out. And then by doing that, they're put on um, synthetic hormones, which are not as good for their bodies. Right. So in that particular case, leaving these kids alone, <laughs> they would be healthy. But yeah. taking those gonads out and having um, artificial hormones really be the thing. You know, there's a lot of um, 
diabetes and, you know, trouble um, with just so many other things from taking out working gonads that just didn't fit what the doctors thought was appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. So there are many cases of intersex where they're, if you leave people alone, they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a rare uh, condition um, where the electrolytes in your system are um, affected with congenital adrenal hyperplasia where the body produces more um, androgens than is typical. And those babies will die of dehydration if that's not addressed right away. But it's one of the only intersex variations that I know that are like life-threatening at birth. Um, but presumably that's something that um, can be corrected without genital right like you can surgery. Cor okay. correct a salt imbalance without <laughs> yeah. cutting anybody's <laughs> genitals yeah um so yeah as you were saying that i was just thinking about how many times i have had a salt deficiency and i was like um yeah that seems that seems very fixable um so yeah it, i mean just it seems like in the grand scheme of things um, there is just really no excuse for these surgeries, um, and I absolutely hope that they're they're deemed a human rights violation in the United States. And um, I wanted to ask um, Megan a little bit more about some of your um, biblical studies. And you had mentioned Genesis. Um, you had mentioned um, Matthew. The talk about um, the the eunuch. Was there anything in the Bible that related to intersex studies that was um, that was hard to decipher that you had a particularly difficult time kind of um, tying it together with intersex studies that you later realized like, no, this is about intersex people? Well, the term eunuch um, is a very general term, and it's mm -hmm. used differently in different parts of scripture. Jesus is very specific in Matthew 19 about the naturally born eunuch, which is um, how ancient rabbis talked about intersex babies. But okay. sometimes you'll hear eunuch, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he was probably a cut eunuch, a, a castrated boy or man who was enslaved. It's a very common practice um, in the ancient world to castrate boys and raise them as slaves. They were often sex slaves. They were also used in aristocratic households because, you know, they, they couldn't um, take over the dynasty because they couldn't perpetuate their own line. So they weren't a threat to the king in that way. So they were used um, in that way. So you have to be careful about, I mean, certainly the eunuch in Acts 8 was a legally third gender category in ancient Rome. So okay. <laughs> we don't That's... know for sure that they were um, cut, but it's likely given their status as, you know, the high ranking servant of the queen of Ethiopia that fits yeah. with what we know about the slavery of eunuchs in the ancient world. Um, but then there's a really important passage in Isaiah um, 56 that talks about outsiders. So, if you, I mean, Genesis does talk about male and female. All of the laws in Genesis, Leviticus, Exodus, <laughs> Numbers, Deuteronomy, 
they're all, they only talk about male and female. So, um, so it is a challenge. Um, but then you get to Isaiah and I mean, it also talks about the difference between Israel and the Gentiles, everybody else. Um, and in this interesting passage in Isaiah, it's the eunuchs and the foreigners who are crying out to God about the difficulty of being a, a Gentile, a foreigner in ancient Israel, and a eunuch in a system that only recognizes male and female for the most part. Hmm. And God speaks to them and says to the eunuchs who keep my commands, who who do the things that please me and keep my covenant, I will give to them in my house a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And the wow. next verse is one we're more familiar with, um, to the foreigners who keep the covenant, um, they will be, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar because my house shall be a house of prayer for all the peoples like yeah. that second half of that chapter i had heard but i'd never heard anybody preach on the eunuch and how right. god is saying look i'm not gonna fix you you know be, you know i'm not gonna take make you into a good jewish boy who can perpetuate his name by having a son who has a son who has a son i mean that's yeah. how you perpetuate your name in judaism but no, God says, I'm going to give you a name better than that of sons and daughters, an everlasting name. So yeah. these people who live in a third gender category in the Hebrew Bible are blessed by God as they are. They're right. not promised, oh, someday you'll be fixed. Um, yeah. And I that passage was like, wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then the challenge for me was, okay, how do I fit Genesis and the, you know, the male-female laws and then this passage in Isaiah, this passage, you know, by Jesus into something that makes sense of the canon as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, you know, I focused my theological work. And yeah. I always say, we're not trying to get back to Genesis. Right. Um, we're not trying to get back to the garden that are, there are many differences in Genesis that there are many things that don't exist in the first chapter of Genesis. There aren't different ethnic groups in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. There aren't different languages. There aren't different nations. Um, but what we find in the book of Revelation is that all of those differences are a part of those who gather around the throne and worship the lamb. Yeah. So I said, we're not going back to Genesis. We're going forward to the new creation, which is so much more complex, so much more beautiful, so much more diverse than, than the garden. The garden was a good beginning, but it's the beginning. It's yeah. not the end of the story. And so, but it took me a long time reading and studying and trying to think, how can we make sense of the Bible as a whole? You know, yeah. not just pick and choose the passages that fit, you know, this side of the argument or that side of the argument, because, you know, we don't get to do it that way. We have to respect all of Revelation. That makes sense. Uh, one thing that uh, I, and Karen, if you're listening, I apologize if I, if I misquote you. Um, I am as far from a biblical scholar as you could possibly be. Um, 
but I, if I understand correctly, also in Genesis, they don't talk about the creation of angels. Um, there, there are a lot of things that just are, are not discussed. So, you know, an argument from silence is just not a particularly good one. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a, um, a third gender category. And one of the arguments that I regularly hear um, in support of a binary system is that because being intersex is so rare, it's it's not you know deserving of its own gender, um, or that it's not you know that if if intersex people generally wanted to be considered a third gender, that there are not enough of them to. Um, to to qualify and one of the comparisons which uh, i want to be clear as i'm describing this this is a, a horrible argument but um one of the comparisons is like if somebody's born with you know four fingers on one hand we shouldn't cr we shouldn't create a new like species um you know name for this for this individual what is the impact in in your mind and Marissa and Lee, and I would love for you to jump in um, as as you'd like. What is the impact of of intersex people on a binary system of gender? Um, meaning, if if intersex people were allowed to be left alone and they were not, you know, they didn't undergo these horrible surgeries as an infant, would that be classified as a third gender or would you look at their gender presentation as indication of what their gender is? Um, well, I, I don't think anyone is, um, most people, even for intersex children with genital variants, so, still support raising them as a typical boy or typical girl. But the problem is you don't need to have your genitals surgically altered to mm -hmm. fit that um, gender at that young of an age. I think um, some intersex people will grow up and feel non-binary. Some, some are perfectly content being a man or a woman. And um, it's, it's all about choice. I think um, if I had not had surgery when I was younger, um, assuming I would still have grown up and felt like a girl, and then I would have made that choice to conform my body to a typical female. Um, but um, I don't know. Is that is that answering your question? It is. Yeah. Um, no. That that was a. A great answer. Um, and I actually, Marissa, had a, a follow-up question for you. Yeah. So you you mentioned that you are a queer intersex woman. Um, and I, again, because of a conflation between intersex people and trans people, um, and, you know, the, because of the conflation between sex and gender, a lot of intersex people are kind of involuntarily put into a queer category, like under the queer umbrella. Do you think, um, do you think it's appropriate for queer people, or I'm sorry, for intersex people to automatically be put under the queer umbrella? Um, and if, if not, why, if so, why? I'm comfortable 
with the I being an LGBTQI, I know some aren't because mm -hmm. um, typically parents with young intersex children don't want to like put their children in the category of sexuality or something yeah. like that at that young of an age. Many, many people still see this as um, kind of a medical type issue. And I think for them, um, if, if they're not comfortable being in the LGBTQI umbrella, um, I'm not gonna say it's unfair, but that's just how they feel. I don't think all intersex, all intersex people I'd say are not comfortable with being in the LGBTQI. I am because mm -hmm. I'm also queer, lesbian, gay, queer, either one, <laughs> yeah. but intersex, yeah. Uh, so I'm comfortable with it. It's, it's made me feel um, more sense of belonging, but I would say not all intersex people are comfortable with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Leanne, would you mind also speaking to this? Um, what what are your thoughts on um, the I being at the end of LGBTQI? Um, one of the things that my pastor suggested when he found out that I was intersex was that I disassociate from anything having to do with LGBT. And I told him that it really wasn't up to me whom the church considered a leper. I mean, whether or not the I is in LGBT is something I can decide. I, I don't like categories. And one of the reasons I don't is, you know, you talk, there's very few intersex people. It doesn't matter to me if there were only one. The, the problem is that they want to push us into male or female by denying the differences that our bodies have. And by reducing sex to a single parameter which is usually ovaries versus testes or the presence of a Y chromosome and saying, you have that, you belong in this category. And for the woman with complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome, they would say she's male because she has Y chromosomes and testes in her abdomen, even though the testes don't produce sperm and they do give her a feminizing puberty. Um, so it's, you're making, you're ridiculing not only the intersex person, you're ridiculing the category of male because you, you've reduced it to where you're shoving someone into it who could live their entire life without knowing that they are even different from another woman. You know, yeah. they, they don't get their period, but there's a lot of women who either have very mild ones or, or you know, don't worry about it. Right. They just don't get it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I feel pretty comfortable saying that, um, we could continue this conversation for the next six hours, but I do <laughs> want, um, to respect y'all's time. So I'll go ahead and wrap it up here, but, um, I'll start with, uh, Megan, do you have, um, a website where people can go for more information for your books, um, for, um, just any, uh, a way to contact you? Um, and, and if so, I, I would love to put it on the screen, but could you tell the listeners at home what that is? Thanks. Two websites I would want to tell you about. One is <clears throat> actually the nonprofit that Leanne and I started, and Marissa recently came on our board, and that's Intersex and Faith. 
Okay. So www.intersexandfaith.org okay. um, is where you can find out about our work, um, trying to help faith communities and the world at large to understand and welcome and support intersex people. Um, and then my personal website, uh, there's a link to it from that one, but it's megandefranza.com. Okay. Um, so if you're trouble spelling that, you can always go to the intersex <laughs> and faith and find me from there. And you'll find my books and um, journal articles and other work that I do there. We all together created a documentary called Stories of Intersex and Faith. Um, I realized that I couldn't drag Leanne everywhere in all of the world or myself, but that everyone needed to hear her story. This is before I knew Marissa. And so we made a documentary together. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the ways that we do educate communities. And you can find out about that. You can watch the trailer on intersexandfaith.org. Um, and find and, out more about how to bring that to your community. And presumably donate. Um, is there a way yes. to donate? Yes, <laughs> feel okay. free to donate to the work that we do. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. As much as I would love for people to donate um, and you, to Centerpiece, um, I, I also highly encourage, you know, uh, a multiplicity of, of places to, to donate. And this is clearly a wonderful cause. So please, you know, go to, um, I'm sorry, it was intersex and faith, right? Intersex and faith, um, .org and donate there, um, help, help, um, these three women, you know, get the, the message to, to everybody so that, you know, things can, can start changing in a more positive direction. Um, and Leanne and Marissa would do, if y'all have any social media you would like to plug or any websites, certainly, uh, go, uh, look up Leanne and, um, and buy some of her books. Um, I, I hope that all of the titles are as interesting as your first book. Um, do you have anywhere else that you would like to point people, Leanne? Um, my website is leannesimon.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not on Twitter or LinkedIn any longer. Okay. Um, that's no perfect. Um, I can honestly say that Twitter has changed from a very happy place to a very sad, depressing, desolate place. So that was a very good call. I highly recommend not being on Twitter. Um, Marissa, do you have anywhere that you would like people to go to learn more about you? Um, I don't have a website, but I you can contact me through email and I do have a Twitter. Um, Offhand, I don't remember my Twitter name, but I can, anyone who wants to get in touch with me, email is good. Okay. I can give you well, my email. Yeah, well, they can like... contact you at info at intersexandfaith.org or yeah. .com because okay. then we don't have to give your personal email. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I... They can contact any of us out Marissa, do you want to talk about the two other organizations you work with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, please. Um, so I have been involved with Interact Advocates for Intersex Youth um, for about eight years. Um, I'm what you call an intersex youth advocate. Hmm. Um, there, it's kind of like a volunteer 
Um, so I've been involved with them for a while and I am also part-time contract staff with Interconnect Support Group, which was formerly the uh, AISDSD support group. So those are the other two organizations I'm um, involved with. And if you have questions about either of them or me, you can just get in contact with me via email or okay. um, yeah. email Megan mentioned and I'll, I'll help in any way I can. Wonderful. Well, thank all three of you for um, being here and for sharing your stories. Um, I, I certainly hope that we can get you on another episode next season um, and we can talk about any updates and we can hopefully get more people to donate to all of these wonderful causes. Um, and I just, again, I really, really appreciate all three of you being here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Y'all have a great weekend. Thank I'll talk you. to y'all later. Too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.